All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's guidance in our study of His Word. Father, we're thankful for Your Word, for as the prophet said, when we eat it, when we take it in, it becomes uh, sweet to us. It is the source of life. It enables us to understand who we are. It enables us to understand the world around us. And it gives us a hope. It gives us strength in difficult times. And it focuses us on the real issues of life. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Matthew, especially in what is a, a difficult passage for some, we pray that you'd help us to clearly understand the passage that we can read it with understanding and comprehension and that God the Holy Spirit will challenge us us with its significance and meaning for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this passage that we're coming to in Matthew 18 verses 5 through 10, I've entitled this passage, Loving One Another. Now, some of you may say, well, I just heard you read the passage. It doesn't mention anything about love. Well, it's true it doesn't, but that's what it's about. And and the word love is one of those difficult words to define. Most of the time we just hear descriptions of it, but it's difficult to define, and I've tried taking various stabs at it, and sometimes the best we can do is a little bit of a description, but... But uh, definition, it's not an emotion. You look it up in Webster's, you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, and the word loved is, is always such an emotion. But in Scripture, it's not an emotion. In, in Scripture, it is talking about a mindset, a mentality. And it begins with God. The pattern for understanding love comes from God, who the Scripture says is love. There are only a few of God's attributes that are isolated in passages which say God is something. He defines what that is. God is holy. God is light. God is love. And the best that I've been able to come up with is that love is a mentality directed towards other people, whether you like them or not, whether you know them or not, that seeks the absolute best for them. Now, as soon as you use that word best, it implies some system of values. And if you're an immature believer or an unbeliever, then you often will think that what's best for somebody else is really what's best for you, right? What's best for somebody near me or dear to me is really what I want them to do. So that's not really love, because the description of love is that it's unselfish, it is not about me, it's about the other person and providing that which they need in the, in the situation that I'm able to provide no matter what it might cost me. 
And that's what we see pictured by uh, God the Father as he's willing to give his son to die on the cross for our sins. It's what's depicted in the Lord Jesus Christ as we studied the last time in Philippians chapter 2, coming to understand the concept of humility in Scripture. It means that he was not willing to hold on to his position, his prerogatives, his privileges in heaven, but he was willing not to grab hold of or not to grasp after those privileges, but he was willing to obey God and enter into human history and to live with mortal corrupt sinners, even to the point of going to the cross to die for our sins. So that's what love is. It has to do with not asserting our own rights, our own position, our own privileges, but focusing on the other person. That's essentially what this passage ends up talking about with reference to those who are focused on becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at these uh, five verses this morning. I want to read them again because there's so much to this. That's one reason I didn't go beyond verse 4 the last time, and I'm not even sure when I look at my notes that I can make it all the way through this because this is one of those, I love passages like this because you have to really dig into the Word to figure out what is being said and what is being meant, because on the surface, especially of English translations, you can easily be misled. Now, I don't want anybody taking that as a rationale for not reading your Bible. Like I said the other night, sometimes you hear people say, well, I tried to read my Bible, but I don't understand it, so I don't read it anymore. Well, I'll guarantee you one thing. If you don't read your Bible, you'll never understand it. Now, when we read our Bible, we'll have questions, and I have questions. I read my Bible, I just put a question mark down next in the margin next to it, and then later when I have time to study, I'll come back to that. But I just, when I'm reading, I'll just, okay, well, that's, that's kind of unusual, or I don't understand that. I'll just read through it because I'm reading to catch the, the, the thrust of the passage to understand uh, the who, where, when, what, and why of Scripture who are the main people? What are the main events? Why did these things happen? Just to get that. And by the time you've read through your Bible all the way through about nine or ten times, all of a sudden you begin to realize how much you've learned and how much more sense it makes because you've been spending time uh, time in the Word. But there are always going to be passages like the one here where you hit it and you say, boy, that just doesn't seem to make sense. And that's why we have pastors. And that's why God has given the gift of pastor-teacher is so that we can have uh, leaders who guide us and nourish us and feed us the Word of God and can hopefully teach us what it says accurately. But this is also one of those passages that is mostly misunderstood for a variety of reasons. So let me just read it again, and then we will get into the uh, meat of the text. Whoever receives one little child, Jesus says to his disciples, like this one, in my name, receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. 
If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. All right, I'm sure some questions occurred to you as we went through that passage. And so let's just take a minute to find out how this develops. Just a reminder and review in the first four uh, verses. The situation is that Jesus now comes to his uh, to his disciple, or the disciples come to Jesus and ask him this question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this grows out of several events that just occurred prior to this. Is as uh, it's Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John with him up on the Mount of Transfiguration, so it seems like he's singling them out for, for special privilege. Then when he comes back, remember the rest of the disciples had tried to cast out a demon, and they couldn't do it, and he rebukes them because they didn't have uh, any faith in terms of casting out the demon. And then Peter and the Lord are having a situation where they're challenged about uh, whether or not Jesus pays the temple tax. And so Jesus, uh, through a miracle, a very brief miracle, provides uh, the, the two drachma tax for, for himself and for Peter. So it seems to be focusing more and more on Peter. So the other disciples might be getting a little jealous, might be wondering just who's, who's, how, how's this ranking going to occur when we get into heaven? But the important thing is to understand the question. It, who, what's the basis for rankings in the kingdom of heaven? Now remember that phrase, kingdom of heaven, doesn't refer to this spiritual kingdom. It refers to the future millennial messianic kingdom when Jesus comes back to the earth and literally establish his kingdom on the earth when he, as the greater son of David, will rule and reign from Jerusalem. This occurs at the end of what is called the seven-year tribulation when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming and returns to the earth, destroys the, the armies of the Antichrist at the battle or campaign of Armageddon and cast Satan into the lake of fire. I mean, cast Satan into uh, the abyss and binds him for a thousand years and he casts the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet into, into the lake of fire. And then he establishes his kingdom. So that's what they're focused on. And this has been a major theme that we've studied all the way through Matthew. So Jesus then calls this this little boy. He's called a young child, but he's always referred to with a masculine pronoun. So he calls this little boy up to him, and he is going to use him as an object lesson to illustrate the answer. And the answer focuses in verse 4, as you see on the screen, on the issue of humility, verse 4 says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are a lot of characteristics that, that have been pointed out in relationship to little children. And those various characteristics of a young child are often used as the point of this analogy, and I disagree with that. I think that is not right, but usually what you'll find listed in in commentaries and here in sermons is that a young child like this is not self-absorbed. 
He's uh, not self-assertive. He's obedient. He's submissive. He's trainable. He's not proud or self-sufficient. Now, let me suggest to you that anybody who's been a parent of a little boy will recognize that their little boy had none of those characteristics. In fact, uh, the Bible recognizes that that's not typical of young children, and in Proverbs 22:15 says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction drives it far away. So as I pointed out last time, in looking at the analogy to Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 5 and following, focusing on the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there are two aspects to humility. The first is submission to authority. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Okay, so one aspect of humility is is uh, submission to authority. The other, and that's what people tend to focus on. The other aspect that is present in Philippians 2 verse 6 is that it's not asserting your own rights, your own privileges, your own position your own position, it's not seeking personal status or position for its own sake. Jesus, who is eternally God, eternally sovereign, and worthy of all worship, did not regard equality with God something to be asserted, according to Philippians 2.6. So that's the focal point of the analogy here to humility. It is that in the society of that day, Children had no rights, no privileges. They were a zero. They were uh, not only to be, they were to, to not be seen and not be heard. They had no rights, no privileges. And Jesus is saying that you just ask who's going to have the privileges and position in the kingdom. And I'm telling you, unless you get rid of that kind of thinking, where you're focusing on future privilege and position, until you get rid of that kind of thinking, you're not going to be anything in in, in the kingdom. And if we look back, and it's important to look at this, if we look at this as, as Jesus states this in verse verse 3, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children. Now, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples who are already believers. So he's not talking to unbelievers who need to convert to Christianity, to convert from being an unbeliever to a believer, but from believers who have wrong-headed ideas, who are just seeking personal status, and they're, and, and they're operating on, on their own self-absorbed arrogance, unless you turn from that and turn to where you have a mentality of serving God where your own personal position, prestige, and recognition is not the issue... It's only at that point that you're going to be able to grow spiritually and, and eventually uh, your service will be recognized uh, in the kingdom. And so this brings us to a point as we continue to get into the next section of the dialogue as Jesus builds on this, this visual aid that he's, he's got this little boy in front of him. He's built on that aid and he says, unless you are like this child that is a nobody unless you're like this child uh you're not going to uh enter the kingdom of heaven and that as we saw last time that doesn't mean to get saved or to get justified or to or to avoid the lake of fire that means to enter into the fullness the richness of the abundant life of the kingdom of heaven and so then he is going to make a neck the next statement 
Uh, and what we see in verse 5, and in my Bible, there's a, there, there's a break between 5 and 6, and some, some, um, some translations will put the paragraph at the beginning of verse 6. But actually, I believe that, that the break should come between 4 and 5, because in 5, he's going to talk about the things that are positive. He's going to think about the a positive relationship between disciples, and in verse 6, he talks about the negatives, and the negatives cover four verses. So the negative and the warning there in those four verses is uh, much more significant in Jesus' thinking than the positive uh, of, of verse 5. But we'll get into this, and as we look at this, there are uh, several things that we should uh, that we should note. First of all, as he does this, and he states the positive in verse 5, he is stating that whoever receives one little child like this, in my name, receives me. That's the only verse that's talking about the positive, and the rest of them strongly warn against the mistreatment of this child, and the punishment, the judgment, is stated in extremely harsh language. The other thing, the next thing that we see that is in most English translations, it appears that he's still talking about that little child in front of him. And many people take it to mean that that little child represents all children. And so it appears in many translations that the maltreatment of this child or any child will result in eternal condemnation and spending eternity in the lake of fire. For at the end of verse 7, it says they'll be, the warning is that they'll be cast into everlasting fire, and that is parallel to the last uh, couple of words in verse 9, translated usually hellfire. So it appears that no matter what else you do in life, if you are guilty of child abuse, and I've heard pastors use this as a text, and it's a pretext, uh, for uh, to teach against child abuse. And it's not saying that at all. But if, if, if that's what it's saying, then it would also indicate from the English that if you are guilty of child abuse or maltreatment of a child, then, then it doesn't matter what else you do, you're going to go to the lake of fire. Now that seems rather con- confusing for a lot of readers uh, because uh, that runs counter to passages like Ephesians 2.89 and Titus 3.5 and, and many others that talk about the fact that, that we don't do anything or commit any kind of sin that can cause us to either lose our salvation or not be saved because Jesus paid the penalty for all sins and we're saved simply by trusting in him uh, and him alone. So what in the world is going on in this particular passage? To understand that, we have to address three basic or four basic questions. First of all, we have to find out who Jesus is speaking with. To whom is Jesus speaking? Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Now, that's obvious so far from what I've said. He's talking to believers, and we'll expound on that a little more as I answer the questions in more detail in a minute. The second question that has to be addressed is, who is the little child of whom Jesus is speaking? Is he still talking about the little boy in front of him? Or has he moved on to talk about spiritually the one who has become like this little child and is pursuing discipleship so he can enter the kingdom of heaven? 
That's the question we need to address. Third question is when Jesus describes the threats to the person who causes harm to one of his disciples, is the severity of the punishment to be understood literally, or is he speaking in hyperbole? He says it's better for him to hang a millstone around his neck and drown in the sea, or it's better to cut off his hand, foot, or pluck out his eye. Now, when we think about that, if we take that literally, then that means Jesus is affirming self-mutilation. Now, unfortunately, in church history, there have been those who took this literally. For example, one of the uh, good and bad early church fathers was a man named Origen, who when he read this verse, because he was so often overcome with uh, sexual lust, he self-emasculated so that he would not have that problem anymore. He's not the only one in church history who've taken it to that degree. And then we have the phrase to be cast into everlasting fire or hellfire. How are we to understand that? And that really leads us to the fourth question, which says, and what does Jesus mean when he says hellfire at the end of verse 9? To most English readers, that means the lake of fire. But is that what the original language indicates? Is that what this means? Is Jesus talking about the eternal lake of fire? And it certainly looks that way because the parallel in verse 8 is the term everlasting fire. And so everlasting fire is true because the lake of fire is eternal punishment. So therefore, he must be talking about eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. So it looks as if if I don't love children, then I can't be saved or I may lose my salvation. And there are many people who have taken this passage to mean that. And this is one of the things that's important. We go back to basics in Bible study. And for those who've taken the Bible study methods class, this will be a review. But for those who haven't, maybe it'll encourage you to go through those lessons online so you just it may not make you a great Bible student, but it will enhance your ability to read the Bible, to study the Bible, and understand what in the world comes out of my mouth sometimes uh, in Bible class. That that there are three stages to Bible study. First of all, observation. What does the text say? Yogi Berra said, you can observe a lot of things just by watching. And if you don't, Look at what the text says and take time saying, what does that say? Then if you short-circuit that, then when you get to the next question, what does it mean? You will often end up misinterpreting the passage because you didn't take enough time to understand what it said to begin with. And then the third stage is, what does it mean to me or application? Now, when I went through Dallas Seminary, we took a course on Bible study methods taught by Howard Hendricks, who taught it for about 50 years, and I've used his his uh, textbook on that when I've taught Bible study methods. And he said the biggest mistake most people make when they're reading the Bible or trying to study the Bible is they spend about 5% of their time on observation and about 10% on interpretation, and then the other 85% on what does it mean to me. They don't know what it says, they don't know what it means, and they're immediately jumping to the question, it's all about me, so what does God want me to do from this passage? 
said the reality is that if we spend about 85% of our time in observation, answering those questions, what does it say? What do these words mean? What does that grammatical structure indicate? Where are these places? Who's speaking? Who are they speaking to? If we spend 85% of our time dealing with those, those fundamental questions, then the interpretation will become pretty obvious. It, it, it almost becomes a matter of falling off a log to answer the question, what does it mean? Because now we've un- really understood what it says. And then the last 5% is application, and that's also pretty obvious because once you really understand what it says, it then becomes fairly clear without a lot of work as to what it means, and then what it means to me is painfully obvious at that point for, for many of us. So this is what we need to do is look at what the text says here as we answer these four questions. And then I think that, that it's pretty simple to understand what the significance is that Jesus is, is addressing. He says in verse 5, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now before I get there, I'm jumping ahead because of the slide. But the first question that we're addressing is the question, to whom is Jesus speaking? In verse 1, we read that the disciples came to Jesus. So we've got Jesus, and we've got the twelve. In verse 2, we're told that he set the child, he gets his little boy, and sets his child in the midst of them. The them refers to the twelve. And that's the eleven who are saved, and Judas is not. Verse 3, Jesus begins to speak to them and says, Assuredly, I say to you, that's the twelve, Unless you are converted and become his little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So since 11 of the 12 are already saved and justified and regenerate, it can't be that he is talking to them about how to become regenerate, justified, and enter into heaven and avoid the lake of fire. Because he's talking to people who've already done that. Conversion, as I pointed out already, refers not to converting to become a Christian, but turning to obedience from disobedience, turning to humility and away from arrogance and self-centeredness, seeking your own position in the kingdom. And the third thing we see is that whatever Jesus is talking about then, it isn't about getting into heaven when you die and avoiding the lake of fire. So if Jesus isn't talking about avoiding the lake of fire, then when he talks about everlasting fire in verse 8 and hellfire in verse 9, he's not talking about the lake of fire, despite what English translations seem to indicate. And if you've got just about any study Bible, what that study Bible seems to indicate, or what a lot of commentaries seem to indicate. Now, the position that I take on this is not unique to me. It's a position that's been taught, but it's, it's a minority position, but I think it's one that fits the context. And that's part of observation is really look at the context. Once you see who Jesus is talking to, you recognize he can't be talking about issues about phase one salvation, getting into heaven and avoiding the lake of fire. He has to be talking about something else. And even though the language may make you think about the eternal lake of fire, maybe you need to see if there's an alternate uh, understanding that makes a little more sense. So he's talking to believers about issues related to the Christian life. Now, the second area of questioning 
asks the question, who is the little child of whom Jesus is speaking? Now, physically, he starts off with this little boy. And then, by verse 5, it seems that he is no longer talking about the little boy, but he has shifted. The little boy was a training aid, a visual aid to help understand what the spiritual disciple must do when he is pursuing discipleship and pursuing the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about discipleship. Now, remember, Matthew is the gospel of discipleship. The last commandment that Matthew records from the Lord in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is to go and make disciples by baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. See, a disciple is more than a believer. A believer is a person who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. When I quote from John chapter 11 every week, when Jesus talks to Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He ends that statement by saying, do you believe this? Over 95 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes the issue believing in him. He never says believe and be baptized, believe and change your life. He never even uses the word repent. He doesn't say believe and convert. He doesn't say believe and repent. And when we come to the end of the Gospel of John... John says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you have life in his name. That's the gospel. And so once you trust Christ as Savior, you are a believer, but you're not yet a disciple. And so the, the, the subtext of everything in Matthew is, and the question that ought to be pounding each of us every time we read Matthew is, are you willing to take up the challenge to be a disciple. A disciple is a believer who is not satisfied with simply being born again, but wants to grow and mature to serve the Lord. A disciple was a term for a student, a learner, someone who was dedicated and committed to following the teachings of his professor, his teacher, his master, his rabbi, and willing to do whatever he said to do. And so uh, Jesus is talking about uh, discipleship here because the, it's the, those who are disciples who are going to enter the kingdom with this fullness that he talks about in this particular passage. He's talking to the twelve, and he's talking to specifically the eleven and say, saying, this is what you need to do if you're really going to be true disciples. You can be a believer and not a disciple, but the issue here is to be a disciple and fully enter into the kingdom. So there's, in basic conclusion, just from these first two questions, is that Jesus isn't talking about getting saved. He's not talking about getting into heaven. He's talking about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Are you willing to grow spiritually and grow to spiritual maturity so you can effectively serve the Lord? He's talking to the disciples about the seriousness and the consequences of being a disciple and problems that can occur if you don't follow through with what Jesus says about the responsibilities of a disciple, especially in terms of love. Now, the third question I asked is, when Jesus describes the threats to the person who causes harm to one of his disciples, 
Uh, is, the sever- is the severity of this punishment to be understood literally? Are you supposed to literally grab what this is not just a millstone, because a millstone can be small and you could use it in, in the kitchen. This is a donkey stone. It's one that is huge, it's enormous, way outweighs a human being by, uh, by maybe twice his weight, and is pulled around outdoors uh, in a mill to crush the grain, uh, by, and it's pulled by a donkey. And so if you tie this around your neck and you jump into a lake, you're just going to go straight to the bottom and die. And so that's, that's what he says there. So is he talking literally that you should go tie a millstone around your neck and go jump in the lake and die? Or is he speaking in uh, hyperbole? He talks about cutting off the hand, the foot, and plucking out the eye. And this probably has some allusion to the fact that when the priest was ordained in the Old Testament, he would take blood, which always signifies a sacrifice, and he would touch it to his earlobe and to his hand and to his feet. And, and it was a depiction of the fact that, that, that the, the, the blood of the sacrifice should impact how you think, what, what goes in your ear, what you learn, what you think, uh, what you do, indicated by your hands, and where you go, indicated by uh, by, by your feet. And so when Jesus is t- talking about this and he talks about cutting off your, your ear, your hand, and your, um, um, and your feet, it's, it's a reference, an allusion to that, that, that every aspect of our life, our thought life, what we do and where we go, everything needs to be impacted, uh, by the word, by the word of God. So he says here that, that you're to cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pl- pluck out your eye. That's indicating that that these areas need to be straightened out or you're going to have serious consequences. Proper interpretation of this passage means that we ought to understand this as hyperbole. Hyperbole is just a common figure of speech. I've known some pastors, you have too, who have been the master of hyperbole. They have overstated almost everything. If they wanted somebody to move to the left 10 feet, they 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 talked as if they should move to the left 30 feet in the hopes that they would move 5 feet. There's people in the meteorological prognostication business who overstate almost every storm that comes our way in the hopes that somebody's just going to pay attention a little bit and may not get themselves in trouble. But hyperbole is a time-honored figure of speech. And it is often used to stress the seriousness of something, but it is not stressing the literal nature of something. Jesus is not commanding or endorsing self-mutilation. He's not talking about literally uh, plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand or cutting off your, off your foot. He is emphasizing the fact that as painful as it might be to lose your eye, your hand, or your foot, the devastations of God's discipline in your life are going to be much worse. That's the point that he's making. And that leads us to say, well, Robbie, you just said that, that he's talking about uh, God's discipline in your life. Where are you getting that? Well, that's the next question. And that's the, uh, one of the most complex issues probably in this passage. What does Jesus mean when he uses the term hellfire? It certainly looks like it's the lake of fire because, after all, it's in parallel construction to the term everlasting fire in verse 8. So what is this everlasting fire that Jesus is talking about? 
Now, the phrase in 18.8 of everlasting fire is a trans, uh, or excuse me, in 18.9 of hellfire is a translation of the Greek word uh, Gehenna, which is here on the screen. If you look at it, that's on the right. The Hebrew word is on the left. The Greek word is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is a compound word. It's two words, Gehinom. The word Geh in Hebrew means valley. Hinom was the name of a person. So this is identified as the Valley of Hinom. And this is a valley that is located, if you look at the map here, this is the Hinom Valley running along the south edge of the of the wall of, of Jerusalem. And this was the area that at, later on was used at the time of Christ. To, it was the garbage dump. And it was often thought by people, as they're trying to understand this analogy of the Valley of Hinnom, they would think, ah, it's burning. And they would take the take all the garbage out there, and they would burn it, and so it was like a fire that always went on and on. And they said, oh, a, an ongoing or eternal fire must be the lake of fire. However, when we look at the development of this term as a metaphor in Scripture, we see that it was not used ever in the Old Testament as a reference to eternal punishment, but it was used as a reference to temporal punishment, God's punishment in time to the Jewish people for their disobedience to him. And let me just summarize this. Uh, there's a more detailed uh, development of this in Lesson 29 of the Matthew series, but we'll just look at a few things here. As you see from the top of the slide, these are the two words, and you can see Gehenna is just a uh, uh, form, transliteration of Gehinom. So every time you see this word hellfire, the English word hell actually comes from a Norwegian word. It, it has nothing to do with the Bible. And the word Gehenna, though, is the word that's behind it. And if we translate this to be cast into the Gehenna of fire, that's literally what it says in the Greek, cast into the Gehenna of fire, all of a sudden we realize that this term Gehenna has a historical significance. So uh, this valley located just south of Jerusalem was the location where Judah, the tribe of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, uh, at, in the time of the divided monarchy, had sinned their greatest and most horrible sin by committing child sacrifice in this location. They would set up uh, the various idols to Moloch. And there would have been dozens of these, and they would light the fires in the belly and the furnace of the idol, and then they would immolate alive, that means to burn alive, their infant sons and daughters, and they would go up in the flames of Moloch. And they, and, and they, they slaughtered probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of children in the arms of Molech. And so God, God condemns and indicts them for that. And for that reason, Gehenna became a symbol and as a place of idolatry. It wasn't just, uh, it, it was a literal place. Sometimes when people hear the word symbol, all of a sudden it becomes non-literal. No, it's a literal place. But that literal place represented something, just as there's a literal place of Gettysburg, where a battle took place in the war between the states. 
And Gettysburg represents something. It represents for a lot of Southerners the high water mark of the Confederacy. And for uh, Northerners, it, it indicates the tide has turned and this was the beginning of the end for the, for the Confederacy. And it was a battle of, of which we had some of our greatest, uh, greatest loss of life. So Gehenna symbolized a place of idolatry, it symbolized a place of disobedience to God, and a place of Israel's greatest spiritual failure. In Second Chronicles 28.3, we're told that Ahaz burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire. He immolated them. In Jeremiah 7.31, Jeremiah says, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come uh, into my heart, says the Lord. For their sins of idolatry, Judah was to be punished in Gehenna in 586 B.C. There were three successive invasions by the Babylonians, the greatest and most terrible of which was the invasion in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed and the first temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was burnt to the ground. And the people who survived were taken to the southern part of the, of the city, to the Valley of Hinnom, where they were slaughtered by the Babylonians. So because they had slaughtered their children in the Valley of Hinnom, God punished them by having them also slaughtered in the Valley of Hinnom. This means that it became not only a symbol of the sin that they had committed, but of God's punishment on the nation for having committed that sin. Jeremiah 7.32, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will be no more called Tophet or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter, for they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. That was fulfilled in 586 B.C. So in the Old Testament, the picture is of not of eternal condemnation to the lake of fire, but a place of divine discipline on the nation of Israel for their spiritual failure. Gehenna, therefore, is a symbol for spiritual failure and God's discipline in time for their disobedience. It's a picture of condemnation and shame God's judgment in time, not God's judgment in eternity. Now, when we get into the New Testament, most English translations trans- translate it as hell or hellfire, which indicates or seems to indicate that it's the lake of fire. And most Bible dictionaries or encyclopedia articles understand it to be an idiom in reference to the lake of fire. But from passages like Matthew 18.8, and also from passages like Matthew 18.8, it appears, because it's used as a, 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 in synonymous construction with eternal fire, Matthew 18.7, people think it refers to eternal fire. But eternal doesn't always mean eternal. Eternal fire sometimes refers to Gehenna, and sometimes, which is temporal, which I've already demonstrated from Jeremiah, and sometimes it refers to the lake of fire. It's a generic term. The specific term that defines the topic is the term Gehenna. And a rule of interpretation in Scripture is that you always define the general in terms of the more specific. You don't go the other way around. In Jeremiah 17.4, notice all these, pass- all these verses I'm taking coming out of Jeremiah 17. It says, God says, and you, even yourself, 
shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. That means you're going to be hauled off to Babylon, and you're going to be slaves to the Babylonians. He says, For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Does forever there mean forever and ever, for all through eternity? No. It just means for a really long time. But God's anger against Israel was ameliorated, and 70 years later, he brought them back to their land. So it wasn't forever and ever. And sometimes this word just means for a very long time. 70 years in captivity in Babylon just seemed like a very long time. And then in Deuteronomy 15, 17, uh, when when, uh, Moses is talking about a person who puts themselves willingly into servitude, uh, because they just don't want to live out from under somebody else's responsibility. So it, they, they had slaves, but they were more like indentured servants. But some at the end of the period of, of paying off their, their servitude would want to stay there permanently. And so there was a provision for that. And Moses says, Then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear. They're going to get their ear pierced. Uh, put it up against a door. Put your little earlobe there. Put a hole in it. And he shall be your servant forever. Same word. Does that mean forever and ever? No, that just means for the rest of his life, for a long time. So forever, many times, doesn't mean forever and ever into eternity. It means for a long time during this life. And you have to really study the context to understand understand the distinction. And so what, what we see here is that Jesus is not warning that if you uh, maltreat another disciple... That you're, he's not saying you're going to go to the lake of fire. He says you're going to bear the wrath of God in your life. There's going to be divine discipline in your life. And there's an example of this that, that Paul refers to in First Timothy, two false teachers called Hymenaeus and Alexander. And Paul says, I turned them over to Satan. Now, they didn't lose their salvation, but because of their apostasy and their false teaching that was leading so many Christians astray, that Paul turned them over in divine discipline to Satan so that they would be go through incredible suffering in this life because of their because of their apostasy. Okay, now I think we pretty much understand what the framework here uh, framework is in this particular passage. So let's look at what it is actually actually saying here. Background for this should be, be an understanding of John thirteen thirty four and thirty five. This is Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, he's talking to the disciples. Judas is out of there by this time. In just the 11, he says, you are to love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this, that is your love for one another, all will know that you are my disciples. That love for one another isn't something that indicates you're a believer. It indicates you're a disciple. And that's what Jesus is talking about in, in, in Matthew chapter 18. It's what it means to be a disciple. And, and he gives us a picture here of what love means. And so um, what we see, first of all, in verse 5, he says that this relationship between disciples is that whoever receives one little child such as this, and that is not referring to the physical boy, but the little spiritual child who has humbled himself and and is pursuing the kingdom. Whoever receives another disciple in my name receives me. 
What we learn from this is that disciples are to show acceptance. They are to welcome other disciples and in some cases show hospitality. Hospitality can be a range of different things. It can be welcoming visitors to the church. It can be welcoming missionaries, inviting them to stay in your home. Uh, hospitality can be a range of different things. Notice Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. Writer of Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue. Once again, he's talking about love within the body of Christ. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, who did that? Who did that? Remember, that was Lot in Sodom, Genesis chapter 19. So Jesus says, whoever receives one little child, whoever receives it and welcomes another disciple like me in my name receives me. Now, in James 2.1, we see an example of this. I'm just going to hit the high point here rather than go through all of this. The people that James was writing to had a problem. They were snobs. And someone would come into the congregation, and if they dressed well and they had on designer clothes and they looked like they were worth something, then everybody paid attention to them. But if somebody came into the congregation that was poor, that was a nobody, that didn't look like they could contribute financially to the health of the congregation, then they were ignored. What Jesus is saying is what matters is not a person's status in this life, but what matters is their status in relationship to the kingdom. And if somebody's a disciple pursuing spiritual growth, then it doesn't matter what their life is like. It doesn't matter their education. It doesn't matter their, their, their finances. It doesn't matter their profession. They should all be equally, equally welcomed. And James, Two, one through six, you can look at, at later, but the condemnation there, uh, James says at the end of dealing with the illustration, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? See, these are the ones who will enter the kingdom richly, heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts. Okay, now when we look at Matthew 18.5, whoever receives a little child like this in my name receives me is parallel to what we read back in Matthew 10.40-42. He who receives you, he who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. So receiving this child is like receiving Jesus. He comes representing Jesus in his name. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. He's not talking about salvation. That's a free gift. He's talking about a reward, which is something that is earned through spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and spiritual service. So this is the thrust here. Now we come to the verses where he talks about the negatives. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. That's a bad translation. He's, and, and later you see the word offense. The word that is used in the Greek is skandalizo, and it doesn't mean scandal. It means a stumbling block. It was a term that was used to refer to, to a, 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 a bait in a trap. Uh, maybe when you were a kid, you, you set up a bird trap where you had a box or something, and you propped it up with a stick. And you tied a string to the stick, you put something in there that, that would attract the birds, and as soon as a bird came under the, 
under the uh, box, you would pull the string and, and the stick would move and you'd capture the bird. That stick, that bait, is what this refers to, something that causes a person to fall, to stumble, to be captured by sin. And that's the idea here. It's, it, it's really talking about, in context, false teaching and apostasy. So anyone who causes, one of these little ones who, who wants to be a disciple and wants to grow, causes them to stumble. This is not just a, a, a slight trip up, but somebody who, who really falls by the wayside in their spiritual growth. You cause them to have a blowout in their spiritual growth that it would be better for them if you tied a millstone around their neck and they, they threw them in the sea. In other words, there's serious divine discipline if you mislead through false teaching my children. Then Jesus pronounces two woes on them. Woe to the world because of these stumbling blocks. The world is our external enemy. It is going to present these kinds of stumbling blocks, uh, philosophies and religions that can distract. And so there's a special judgment for the cosmic system. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. We're going to face them day in and day out. But woe to that man, the individual, by whom the offense comes. And this is a warning to pastors. In James chapter 3, James warns that, that, that not, this is one reason not many are teachers because there is an additional judgment on teachers. That if they are not teaching accurately and what they teach misleads people, then there is special divine judgment for them. And then he intensifies this through the very graphic hyperbole of verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin... Literally, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble into egregious sin and fall by the wayside, then he says, cut it off and cast it away from you. In other words, do whatever it takes to get rid of that source that's enticing you to stumble. He's not endorsing physical, uh, f- physically cutting off your hand. He's just saying you need to take, pay serious attention to that and get rid of that source of temptation and stumbling. For it's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed. It's better for you to experience the fullness of God's God's blessing than to have those things in your life that cause you to stumble spiritually. It goes on to say, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into the lake of fire. What he's saying here is to pay attention to that which you're looking at. Because as, as, as John says, it's the lust of the eyes that is a source of sin. This is the first temptation in the garden. Uh, Satan said to Eve, doesn't this look good? And he appeals to the lust of the eyes. So we have to order and organize our lives in such a way to have the discipline to remove the things uh, from our vision and from our thought and from what we do that easily entice us to sin and to fall by the wayside spiritually. And the person who puts those kinds of stumbling blocks in front of a growing disciple is going to reap divine judgment in their life. Now, as I close, just a reminder that this is talking about the importance of our spiritual growth once we're saved. 
that salvation is not by works. This is not saying you need to do these things in order to be saved, but a saved person needs to address these issues in their life so that they can grow spiritually. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. In Titus 3.5, Paul says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is by simply trusting in Christ, not by doing things, not by cleaning up your life. We can never clean our lives up enough to please God because all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. The only solution is to trust in the Messiah who justifies us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think through this passage and to be reminded that 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 we are to love one another, that we are to have certain attitudes and actions towards other believers. We are to welcome them into the assembly, no matter what their status, no matter what their background, no matter what their education, no matter how they look, no matter how they dress. We are to welcome them because they are also pursuing uh, the inheritance. They are pursuing spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, and serving you in this life. And, Father, we need to be mindful of the fact that, that false teaching is dangerous and it's destructive and that there is, a, there is a punishment for those who will lead others who desire to grow astray. And that the focal point of this passage is still upon grace, for you have provided us with this salvation that's free of charge. And, Father, we pray for anyone who may be listening that's never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to trust in him. This is an opportunity you have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And the instant that you trust in Christ, God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ, declares you justified and regenerates you and gives you eternal life, and that can never be taken from you. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned today, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.